up everybody kevin and mike wagstaff here we are taking you through nope <laughs> nope <laughs> what's up y'all kevin and mike wagstaff here another episode of bootstrapping to millions we take you through sass to millions bootstrapping sass to millions. i don't even know the own title i don't even know the title of our podcast yet a uh, couple episodes in i'll get it uh, we're bootstrapping SaaS to millions, and we're taking you through our journey, giving you ideas, tips, mistakes, learnings um, from going from zero to an eight-figure business. What are we talking about today? It's on me. It's on you. Yeah, it's your turn. Yep. We're talking about doing shit that matters, and this is probably more for anyone that's pre-launch, early stages, first couple years of their startup. Um, we're going to go back to our first couple years of our startup, and even prior to that, and it's a simple concept. It sounds simple and easy, but it's really not in practice, right? Oh, the entire industry wants to seduce you into launch parties and networking events and all the glamour and glitz that is, oh, I'm a startup founder. And guess what? None of that probably gets you more customers. None of that advances you in your space. And I want to like social media is toxic for this. Social media is, it does so many great things, you know, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, they all have their purposes, right? And they all have so I'm not just poo-pooing on them in general, but I'm saying for imposter syndrome with starting anything new, everyone's putting their best foot forward. Everyone is kind of just giving you the dog and pony show and not kind of lifting up the curtain. We'll dig into this more, but I think I, I'm on Twitter a lot personally, and I think this is the most toxic place potentially for a startup founder to go because all you read about is MailChimp or Calendly or these founders that are having retreats and launch parties not the simple kind of dirty, unsexy work. So let's let's dive into this a little more. Yeah, so let's let's take us back to like when we were first starting, maybe just around pre-launch, post-launch. What characterized your day-to-day? Um, waking up, not brushing my teeth, not getting dressed, um, you know, slunking down the stairs, wondering if someone was gonna answer my call or talk to me or wondering if a customer would be upset. So not a glamorous start to the day, right? I didn't go into a WeWork, uh, which ironically where we're recording this right now. Um, and just pounding out emails, kind of stalking the internet, kind of, and, and sometimes not feeling like I had a purpose most of the time, honestly. So um, prospecting for customers, being scared to answer questions on forums where our customers hung out, um, stumbling through emails that I didn't know the answer to. So like lots of non-glamorous work talking to customers and just hearing them just give me a wish list of a hundred things they wish software would do. And I'm sitting here thinking, shit, like uh, we do like two of those things. But you were talking to customers the whole time or trying to talk to potential customers like that in my mind is all that matters when it comes to the non-technical side at the early stage. Yeah, exactly. And it's a good point. I think for the non-technical founders here, there's some insecurity early on of I have to show value. I got to, I kind of have to like pre get in front of people. And nowadays the pre-sale model is pretty like prevalent of like get a landing page up, sell pre-sales, hard to do in practice. <laughs> in reality, it's hard to do. Um, so I'd say 90 to 95% of my time was spent just chasing down people thinking of different email kind of, um, you know, lead captures that I could do to get inspectors to talk to me. And, you know, I wasn't thinking about swag. I wasn't thinking about like what else, uh, you know, where we could go work to be seen. It was just like in the corner of my living room with a desk. Um, it felt very makeshift and like, where the hell is this going? Every day, 
Not sexy. For a year. Yeah. Not sexy. Not confident. Not, you know, I wasn't on Twitter at the time. I wasn't on social media. It was like, it, and that was the lonely part. We talked about that in what, episode one or two yeah. of the loneliness of getting up and having no outlet. So what let you know that what you were doing mattered? When I talked to a home inspector that was in the business, that was doing home inspections every day, kept taking my calls or kept booking, rebooking a call with me to, to hammer out a feature or to walk through how something worked or to show me. And I mean, there was weeks where I spent maybe 10 hours with one guy and, and it didn't matter if he was not in the business or in the business, I was going to talk to him anyway. But um, that's a great question because to me, when he kept coming back and then I kept anchoring back to, okay, could you see yourself paying for this? If we get that feature, would you sign up? Um, which is horribly hard to say when you're not confident about the product and when you're insecure. Um, but I, I think more people kept kind of stumbling into it via word of mouth. Um, the few times we posted on forums and social media. So the more people that even would talk to me, I was like, okay, there's something here because they're not getting anything out of it. Right. I think we offered gift cards maybe once. I think we did Starbucks gift card maybe once. That's not going to be as strong as someone saying like, I have a pain point. Can you solve it? Right. A lot of people are just seeing the potential of what it could be. And I think they were just on board to help it get there. Yep. And by continuing to invest in them and talk to them, it wasn't even, it, a lot of people think, oh, how am I going to get my first thousand customers? How am I going to get my first hundred customers? <laughs> Fuck all that. How are you going to get your first one customer? And yeah. then two and then three. And I think that's, that's all that matters. Like, how do you get more revenue when you're a company that's not making anything and you're just putting time and money into everything all you should think about is what's going to get me that next dollar i love the way you just said that and we're not on video so you can't see this but i'm like kind of like like taking my hands next to each other and smoothing them out across a line it's like everyone thinks of how to go super wide as opposed to like going deep so like going deep with one person it's definitely not scalable right. and so i think everyone that just thinks scale 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 we didn't I, i'm not saying it's right for everybody some businesses, I think you have to like spray and pray, but I think spending 10 hours with one guy that lives in Maryland that may or may not stay with your software, sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. But um, in our case, that was the muscle memory we built also right. to do that. Yeah, I believe if you're talking niche B2B, make your niche as small as possible. If that's one company that you think is close, cool. Start with them, then find somebody like them or just slightly um, a little bit different from them. And then you can keep expanding your breadth, but yeah, trying not to say, how do we appeal to everybody in this space at the beginning? It's hard to do. Oh, here's another point on that. So, uh, you know, the, the MBAs out there and the people that went to business school would probably spend weeks building personas and PowerPoint decks and this and that. We just went off our gut. I think we talked, you know, we talked every day at that time in the first year, but generally we knew, okay, tech savvy, Inspe home inspector that wants to be cutting edge that's has a pain point that was it that was yeah. our persona work i think we like did it in five seconds yeah. and that's the quick and dirty and i think that's the whole point of this right is okay we could do all that to make ourselves feel good and feel like we're delaying maybe failing yeah or we could just talk to someone and figure out if he fits that bill or not 100 percent. so um we don't want to beat that up too much. Let's switch to the tech side. Yeah. Um, let's switch to your decisions around trendy, sexy. What was your knowledge of kind of what was out there yeah. in terms of like what everyone's talking about? Oh, man. No matter what you do in tech, people are always talking about the next sexy thing. And they make it sound like if you're not working with that, 
you're just an old man, you're a, joke. a lame yeah. old, yeah. And it's, um, it's easy to come to that pressure. And I think what everybody asks the question on Reddit, on Twitter, like, what should I build my MVP? And it doesn't matter, build it in what you know, build it in what you can move fast in, build it in something that has a community around it, not the cutting edge alpha version that's gonna change every few months. Like build something that you can get something up there and show customers really quickly. If you're seduced by all the new tech, which I think we made a few mistakes on that. Like I think mm -hmm. we got into some beta, I think our mobile app was on a beta platform and that had a share of issues. Um, but we built our core on Ruby on Rails because it's an established ecosystem. There's every question has basically been answered. Mm -hmm. There's, you can move super fast. And that's what we did. And we didn't make a fancy front end library to optimize all the user interaction. There was like long loading times as pages refreshed just be, you know, like on a front end library, you can have like one click and then that thing disappears. Instead, ours did a full page refresh. <laughs> Guess what? That was enough for the first 200 customers. And then we rebuilt it when we had at that point 20K of MRR and we could afford a developer that was specialized in good front end work. Yep. And so, yeah, not over optimizing early. So many engineers will do this. If you're an engineer and you're listening to this, you're probably thinking, how can I make the most amazing thing? This is my magnum opus. It's not, it's the first iteration to get early revenue. And that hurt, that hits probably at the deep, um, kind of what I, what developers identify as, right? Is like architects, I build this beautiful cathedral and everyone comes and, and throws money at me. Like how, what enabled you to kind of get past that, like iterative approach versus front loaded, build a beautiful thing that everyone loves? Bills. Uh <laughs> <laughs> money, yeah. Yeah, I mean, as we talked about in earlier episodes, we had a time period where we basically said, we need this to work mm -hmm. or else I have to go and get a job. And so always having money in mind, it's easy as an engineer to get lost in the craft, to get lost in, oh, I'm gonna turn these all into elegant objects and have the most amazing architecture where everything's gonna be so easy to find and so intuitive. And I'm gonna build my own framework because I realize there's a better way than what's out there. And then you're two years in and you haven't had a single customer and that is not where you want to be. Yep. And so a lot of it is a mindset shift. Yeah. It's, um, I jokingly call it revenue driven development as opposed to like test driven development. We didn't write any tests. We didn't, <laughs> we didn't even do a lot of human tests. We just, our users tested for us. Yeah. Our users reported a lot of our bugs, found a lot of our issues, but what we knew was if we can keep releasing the features they are asking for, they were impressed and they were more likely to sign up. And we got people to start signing up based on our speed of iteration. Speed. And, and the promises that, hey, we're gonna keep making this better as we go. This is not a finished product and it may never be. We're iterating constantly. That's why we charge a recurring revenue model. That's the promise that you have from us is it's not just like you buy this thing one time and then you're done, right? And so, um, yeah, I, I think that's the crux of it is shifting your mentality, being less engineer-like Yep. Speed is your main advantage. And I think that's what, I think it's easy to look at competitors or incumbents, some of them, if they're corporations and think, okay, I got to build something as comprehensive or as big as them. Whereas speed and iteration clients are attracted to that. I believe in any, in most industries, definitely in ours, where you put out a feature, maybe a day later that they requested that built loyalty that built something in that one inspector and, if you do that five, 10, 15 times, one of those 15 are going to go tell 10 or 20 more people. And that's what happened with us, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, hundred percent. I, I remember I, I would get giddy when I heard a feature request and was like, I can build that tonight. <laughs> like let, as soon as I get off this call, I'm gonna code and I'm gonna have something up either tonight or tomorrow morning. Literally, yes. And, and I would just go to it because some of it was not difficult. It was just okay, let me just add these these things really quickly. Um, those are the easy wins I think that you gotta go for. In retrospect, yeah, some of those features might have only been used by a handful of guys. But in the early days when you're fighting to survive, doesn't matter. You don't know what the, the vast majority of your industry is going to do. You know what the three people you're talking to want. And so go with that. You got to build it for them. I really believe you have to kind of take that bait, take that blackmail, because <laughs> how, else is, how else are you going to spread by word of mouth, which is the cheapest way for a product to spread. And, uh, and for you to fix bugs on the spot, that speaks to why you have to be all in. Because if it's your side hustle and you're at your job for eight hours and you get home, you got to put the kids to bed and then you got to hang out with your wife, then you got to eat dinner. When are you going to fix that bug that someone's relying on? You were there to fix it right away. Yeah, I don't know how people do it as a side hustle or, or it not being the full time focus. I know that's some of the common wisdom is, hey, build it up on your free time until you get to whatever number of MRR. Uh, I don't believe in our case we could have gotten to any MRR. Right. without being all in first and really showing the potential customers that we're all in. I, it maybe works for some, but that's kind of my, um, you know, the thing that I believe that is different from the prevailing wisdom. Especially close, especially right before launch and after launch. I think, okay, if you're just trying to cobble together an MVP, maybe, yeah, you don't want to just quit everything and go all in typically. But when you're in those first, like within three, six months of launch and then launch, I don't see how you can be responsive um, while trying to do everything else. Right, and it's scary. It's scary to go all in on something that makes zero dollars to walk away. You know, as engineers, hey, you're used to a great paycheck. It's probably six figures. And walking away from that is really hard. But if you ever want a seven figure income, you're not <laughs> gonna get that as an engineer usually. And so as a business owner, you can. And that's where you have to think like a business person and say, I'm investing. I'm investing my time into building this thing and I'm gonna be all in on it because I wanna see it grow into something Awesome. It's my favorite saying is uh, entrepreneurs are the only ones crazy enough to avoid working 40 hours a week to work 80 hours a week <laughs> um, for the for the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I have a funny story on the dev side. So I used to work at Home Advisor. I worked on the SEO team and I was on the tech floor with probably 30, 40 developers. And we play ping pong like every day we play ping pong and I became really close with a, a couple of them that I still keep in touch with. And so when when I left and we started Spectora, of course, we'd hang out and they'd ask, oh, what language, what, you know, what are you guys built on? What's your stack? And so I'd mention Rails and the looks on their faces, like they, oh, you know, they, they'd all have jokes. They'd all have like old timer jokes. Um, and it's funny, one of them I actually thought could work with us at one point. And, uh, and the irony is, is he'd probably be on a path to becoming a millionaire, but his pride and his ego was like, oh, I'd never work in Rails. Right. That was his thing. Oh, I, I, I got to work in something sexy and new. Right. And it's hilarious to me, the kind of the blind spot that mm -hmm. some of these devs have, because it, I don't even think some of them know how well they could be doing. Say they said, hey, this is a business that has traction. I could be agile here. I could like I could put in work and it can like be in the real world quickly. They just poo pooed because right. of the language. And that right. was it. And instead, one of them, I think, is kind of trying to get his own thing off the ground and not having success. You know, so it's like it's. The ego to me is what jumped out of yes. like, I will not touch rails no matter the, it's like, even if you could become a 10 millionaire, right. a, a multiple digit millionaire, you wouldn't. Okay. I guess yeah. that's your path. You know, it reminds me of like 
contractors of people that are like, oh, I only use DeWalt. I, only, I, can't, <laughs> I can't use a Ryobi screwdriver. It's like, it's a screwdriver. What matters is turning the screw. What matters is putting the screw in the right place to build the structure that you're building. Right. The structure is what matters. Yep. Not necessarily what tools. Yeah, there's better tools for certain things, but like if what you have is a Ryobi screwdriver, fucking use it. Yep. Don't wait around and say, oh, I'm only going to hold out until I can get the whatever brand. It's silly to me. Another great example of that on the non-tech side is like a phone dialing system. Like you, I, I, I probably spent a couple hours too much researching Grasshopper versus Ring Central or <laughs> Zoom phone. Um, and then I think at a certain point, I just kept dialing from my cell phone number. So I was like, fuck, I got to just talk to these people. And so I just started calling. And to this day, about 100 customers have my personal cell still. Only like 10 or so still text me every so often. I'm okay with that because we have a great thriving business yes. with thousands of customers. Um, but you can't let that fear, like I think creating problems that aren't there yet is like oh, yeah. the big, one of the biggest traps of early founders of thinking of the future instead of just saying, what do I do today to move the needle? Now, I have a few things to say on this. So as an engineer, you probably are, if you're a good engineer, you're thinking about how does this scale? And a lot of times those thoughts should not be what you're thinking of. When you get to a thousand customers, then think about how it'll handle a thousand customers. Right now, think about how it'll handle your next customer. And yes, there's we have tech debt. We spent the last couple of years really paying back the tech debt from the first few years. It's a great problem to, to have because we survived long enough and made enough money to hire a dev team to pay back that tech debt. And we have a thriving business that's growing really well. And so I would say incur all the tech debt you reasonably can mm -hmm. because, gosh, spending too much time over optimizing over engineering things for when you hit whatever magical future it, it most likely won't happen because you're going to spend all your time spinning your wheels on that thing as opposed to actually moving the ball forward which feels good because that's a lot of devs comfort zone right oh, yeah. is sp spend a lot of time solving hard problems and that's what you guys get paid a lot of money to do but i think while you're maybe spending months rebuilding your uh your engine or your platform you know payments platform or whatever there's someone out there that's probably just talking to customers saying like, Hey, how can we serve you best? Hey, how can we earn your money? Oh, that one little tiny feature. Cool. Yeah. I built it last night yeah. or I built, I'll build it tonight. So I think there's people that are going after speed. Don't be one of those people. I think that just uh, over engineers overthinks yeah. it because that's six months is valuable time. Yeah. So let's talk about like analysis paralysis. This was something that I learned in like undergrad business school where, you spend way more time analyzing the thing you need to do mm -hmm. instead of just doing it. And so this happens, it happens in code where you're like, oh, well, we have this library or this library, and then we're gonna analyze all the possible use cases and how it's gonna look in the future as we scale up, blah, blah, blah. Just pick one, just pick one. You can change later, it does not matter usually. Yep. Just read a few reviews, read a few forums, and you spend like 10 minutes on it and say, yeah, that, that'll work for our use case right now, go. Same thing, like you said, with Ring Central versus whatever, <laughs> yeah. you know. You can spend your time analyzing all the tools out there. CRMs, there's like a billion to choose from. Doesn't matter. Most of it doesn't matter. What matters is, are you connecting with customers? Are you selling more subscriptions? That's what you should focus on. And if you're spending time thinking about tools, you're not doing what matters. And this hits at what I heard on the My First Million podcast the other day is just like, it all boils down to the fear of failure. And so I think when we overanalyze anything, if you find yourself in that space, think about what you're delaying or what you're fearful of. Is it looking stupid? Is it messing up the video? Is it picking the wrong library and things break and customers are pissed? Like that's all what we're kind of, I think, pushing out by just analyzing as opposed to 
how do I fail fast? I know it's cliche and everyone says fail fast, but like, I feel like you have to write things. You have to put things in your head. I write I, on my whiteboard in my room. I think I have number one circled win today, or what are you going to do to win today? And then number two circled, it says take action on what moves the needle today. And so I heard another framework that was like the ABZ framework, which is like, if you know where you're starting, find out where you want to end up, which is your Z and then just go to B what's the next step forward? Like what's one step forward you could take today? I think this, it has to constantly be a thought every day when you're building. Mm, I love that. A phrase that I heard more recently was uh, having a bias towards action. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the people that we see moving up in the ranks in our company, the people that we read about that are just like making things happen, they have a bias towards action over analysis. As yes. long as you're moving forward, that's all that matters. You can always zig and zag on your way to Z, right? Yep. But moving towards it is what matters instead of just staying still, wheels spinning, not really sure what to do. And you said this at one point, is, or uh, I don't know where you got this from, maybe you could tell me, is like entrepreneurship is making decisions with only like 10% of the information or something like that. And like that happens daily. And if it doesn't happen daily, you're doing, I feel like you're doing something wrong in general. Oh, yeah. Imperfect information is the name of the game. I think for, at least for the engineering mindset, there's this desire for like perfect or close to perfect information before you make a decision. Unwinding that and saying, hey, this seems reasonable enough based on the information I have or figuring out what is the time investment to get just enough information, not even like 80% or 60, maybe 51% of the information you want. Yep. That would be like a really high amount of information to me. Yeah, and one thing we learned at this conference was drawing a line in the sand, or if you wanna think of it differently of like set a date. So by the time you want to get something out there, get ship a feature, talk to X amount of customers. I'm a big believer in putting it on the calendar or it's not real or putting yeah. it on your whiteboard or on your sticky notes um, because then you're committing to yourself and you're more likely to do it. So that's like yeah. basic psychology stuff, right? Is like set a date yeah. by when you want to do this. Um, one, oh, go ahead. Yeah, with calendaring, I usually, yeah, if there's a decision I need to make or something I know just needs to get out, I'll put that calendar event on my calendar if it's like half hour, choose this or that, and that's it. I have to have a decision at the end of that half hour. It yep. doesn't matter. That's, that's how much time is allocated towards that. If it's like build this little feature, cool. I give myself three hours. It's probably shitty at the end, but it's shippable because that's my timeline. I do this personally. I think I need to do it better as a manager because I think mm -hmm. as a manager, I end up letting timelines get loosey goosey, yeah. but so, um, I'm learning on that front. <laughs> and I, I, I believe to back up and think of like a prerequisite for being able to do this at the root of it, communication is what matters. Because I think if there's no communication, that worst fear of something going wrong or breaking or not being the way it should have been is going to result in someone being upset. Cause maybe at the core, we're all just worried about other people being upset or disappointed, these deep emotions. <laughs> but I think if there's constant clear communication on your iterative approach to anything, people are forgiven. Oh yeah. Right. Our customers have been so forgiving because they know who we are as people. They know that we're trying our best, that this is a messy endeavor, and that we're just going to keep trying and making it better. You sell them on that, if they believe that, it's like, hey, you, you misfired on one. Cool. Let's, let's make it better on the next thing. And they want to keep giving you that feedback to let you know when you misfire. I think per, per presenting yourself as if you know everything, this is the way we decided this is the perfect feature built perfectly and you put it out there you're going to turn people off. And so I think you're right. It's about relationships. We always say like, we're in a very relationship heavy business. I think niche B2B 
should be relationship heavy. Yes. Obviously, as you get into bigger niches, it becomes less. So, right. That's why I'm a big fan of the smaller the niche, the better. It, it accentuates some of what I believe our competencies are. And I think humility is also at the core of a lot of this because you think about how a customer reacts when, when you do tell them, hey, well, I'm not the expert. You're the expert in this field. You tell me what you need. How good did that feel to them? They loved hearing that from you. I love it and I, <laughs> because we got into a field that we knew nothing about. I did not fully understand home inspections <laughs> until like a year into running this business. <laughs> uh, whereas some of our competitors were former home inspectors that decided to build the software. And so I know the complaint around them was like, oh, they just have the way and they just don't listen to any input. And we were these guys coming in saying, hey, you're going to educate us. You're going to tell us what your pain points are and we're going to build software to solve them. And gosh, I think that was very refreshing. People loved hearing it and just having that humble approach. Even if you do know the space, still having the humility to say, what I know is not everything there is to know. I'm open to learning how other people do things and figuring out how to make the best possible tool. Man, I see this a lot on, on Twitter specifically. Um, everyone's an expert, everyone's a coach, everyone's got a course, everyone's got uh, you know an email, <laughs> a pay, a sub stack. And uh, in that, I wouldn't say it's off-putting, but it doesn't make you just love and in, it's not endearing when, you know, as opposed to some of the, the true leaders and, and business owners that maybe you don't hear from as much, but they are always are coming from like a humble learning place. And uh, that can't be overstated. I love it. Um, so when we talk about doing what matters, let's also talk about the opposite. Like what are things you consider shit people do that just does not matter and they should stop wasting their time? Getting a WeWork membership before you have uh lots of MRR and profit, not just MRR, profit. Um, so getting office space, I think we were tempted by that. I think we went to Denver Startup Week when we were just complete posers and didn't have anything. And I, we went to a WeWork and we the vibe and everyone there just seemed like they were doing cool shit. And I fell into it. I fell into that of like, this is where I need to be to do creative work and dream of the future. That's all, it ended up all being bullshit. Yeah. You know, like when in reality, I needed to go home, sit in my corner desk, try to talk to people, try to get customers on the phone and find out what they needed. We, I know we sound like a broken record here, but that's, that's one big one for me. What about you? Yeah, 100%. Um, I think when you talk about like launch parties or like, yes, you should celebrate your accomplishments, but when you're putting more effort into the logistics of how to celebrate something, if you're worried about the invite list and like trying to get all your friends together and what, what you're going to wear. Is it formal or casual? Kid Rock's going to be there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> My good <laughs> friend. <laughs> Silicon Valley reference. Good show. Um, yeah. Those are the things that I think people get distracted by. So yeah, we, we were pretty shitty at celebrating milestones. And we also kept our heads down and kept grinding a lot so that we got to where we could celebrate like really big milestones. That was one of our biggest strengths, I believe, especially in this era of, sorry if you could hear that background noise, uh, we're, at, we're at a WeWork in an open space here. Um, the whole build in public movement on Twitter, I don't know if you're aware of this, of like- seen it, what do you think about that? You know, I, I think it's refreshing in some ways. I think it's, it's partly great for people to hear, it's good when they talk about their failures and their missteps too. Um, I think it's great because it humanizes kind of the struggle and the grind and lets people know there's other people going through the same thing. So I think when people share completely and openly about maybe the emotional side, um, it's at times it gets old when it's just like, Hey, I crossed 500 MRR, you know, I got to 600 MRR. I can't help but wonder how much time they're 
they're spending crafting those tweets. Yeah. Um, I barely tweet and I sit there and think about it sometimes and I just stop. I was like, right. okay, fuck it. I don't care. I'm going to get right. back to work. Like I'm, I don't have anything great to say cause I'm just working. Right. So I, I believe it gives people like junk food comfort almost of like, Hey, here's my community. I'm going to get addicted to reading their updates. Right. Every moment of every day that you spend putting energy towards that, you're not thinking about your customers or your team. So I'd say it's most, I'd say it's a net negative, I'll say. And that's not a popular opinion. Everyone loves transparency. Everyone wants to hear what everyone else is doing. I think it's junk food for the brain because that's my experience. My experience was I didn't pay, I didn't even know it existed. Yeah. I think the underlying need is community, camaraderie, Mm -hmm. knowing that there's people doing the same stuff. And we would get that in spurts, you know? So we went to like Denver Startup Week. We met a few other people and, um, because we went to like a total of like three events for startups in the whole first few years. First that few we, years, uh, right. Once and, you know, we met a few people and then occasionally, I think we all got desk pass and would say like, hey, every two weeks we get together and work alongside each other for like four hours. Right. We talk about what current challenges we're facing and then we joke and bullshit and have lunch together. That was not like an everyday thing though. Most of the everyday, the day-to-day was getting up, going down to the basement, turning on a computer and writing code, talking to customers, rinse, repeat. And um, gosh, it, it's hard to, to get away from that feeling that like, oh, I need to be engaged and social and put myself out there and be popular within this little community of aspiring entrepreneurs because it feels like work. There's so many things that feel like work that are not work. And it's, it's total bait, like the fame. We all want to like, and I don't say we all, lots of us want to be rich and famous. It's a, it, you know, and tech is the way to do it. It's the way for non-actors or athletes to like be famous and have a name. Right. And it's exciting, but like without the substance, it gets, it's really hard to do that. And so I think you got to build in private and like, not everyone, I think it's, it's not blanket advice here, but I think it's been much more meaningful to us to grow and kind of like succeed in the dark and in the shadows and then when you talk to people years later, right. they're like, holy shit, you got a legit great business. And right. like that is delayed gratification. That's yeah. all it is, a delayed gratification. Like we didn't really start putting ourselves in our story out there until we crossed like 5 million in ARR. Right. Like that's, that was like five years in the making of us just <laughs> heads down, grinding, focusing on a team, focusing on our product. And now we're saying, hey, let's give back to the community. Let's talk about our story. And yeah, maybe build up our own kind of recognition within this community. A lot of people are trying to do it when they have zero dollars of MRR, a hundred dollars of MRR. And it's, um, and yeah, you're right. It gets to be distracting when everybody's just focused on the socials around it instead of the actual product. And I can count on my, I can count on one hand, how many team parties, retreats, or dinners we've done to celebrate, which is probably on the light side at this point, we probably right. should have done more. But I think the point is we weren't thinking of a team retreat when we had 200 customers, a thousand customers, you know, when we were 20 K MRR, we're just now thinking about a team retreat. Cause we're remote. We're remote first, not remote only remote first. Um, and we're just now thinking of how to do these things. And I think a lot of founders think too early of like how to celebrate, how to make a show out of it. Yeah. And um, because they're on social media and reading what all these big companies are doing, there's a time and place for all that. Now I think it's going to be super beneficial to get all of our team together and hang out for a few days, um, connect as people, talk shop, whatever. I don't think earlier on it was really a good use of time or money. And it's hard for me to relate to the solo founder. That's who I feel for here because I think whenever, I think we poured energy into each other nonstop for a year, two years, three years still, 
to this day, we talk every day. We've talked every day for five years probably, which is crazy, right? <laughs> How many co-founders can say that? Right. Like with the distractions nowadays and everyone wanting a side hustle. So I guess my takeaway is when you don't have social media, pour energy into your team. If you got one contractor, pour energy into them and share your vision with them. Anybody that's on your team, because the outside world, I think it, it goes into the void and you're constantly going to be seeking like validation and likes and right. retweets or a thumbs ups and you're not going to get it. You're not going to get enough. It sounds like the same approach, whether it's customers or your teammates is like quality over quantity or your community, quality connections. You really just need a few people that you feel like you're in the trenches with to connect with every week or every couple of weeks. It's good enough. Yeah. You don't need to have thousand followers that are watching your MRR go from 500 to $600. Like that's <laughs> right. Yeah. And the beauty of it is, is that that comes once you have the success and a story to tell. So it's like, do something meaningful, you know, and then you see these founders like uh, out there on Twitter, they have, all, that's like seven to 10 years in the making. A lot of times, like they've been on Twitter, they didn't have these amount of followers when they had a hundred MRR, right. you know? So I think that stuff just naturally happens when you have more to tell. I like it. All right. Anything else to say on what matters, what doesn't matter? Um, no. That's all I got for now, man. That's same. That's the episode. Cool. Thanks, everybody. See you next week.